Please open your Bible to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, as we continue contemplating and considering and being formed by God's Word for us today. Now, as you're turning there, as you get settled, um, I want to just make a few comments about taking notes. Um, I know several people here are, are taking notes, and it can be a very helpful practice. It's good for uh, remembering information. It's good for staying engaged. You can take notes in many different ways. And if you are taking notes, I want you to write a question or two on the top of your page. Uh, and so the, the simple question is this. What is God saying to us today? What is God saying to us today? Not what is God saying to me today, what is God saying to us today? Or if you want to phrase it a different way, you could say, how does God want to build us through his word? How does God want to build us through his word? Or another way could be, what does this text, this sermon mean for our life together? Now I want you to know that there's no quiz at the end of this sermon, or any sermon that is preached at Grace Church. Our gatherings together are not about acquiring information or, or growing our knowledge base. It's about transformation. Not about acquiring knowledge, but having our vision corrected. That's what we do every week as we gather to sit under God's Word. There's, there's something that happens every single week as we come together. God, God is here, and God is here doing something. Is it, do I have a battery issue? perhaps. It's all the way up. God is doing something as we gather together. God is speaking. God speaks. God speaks through his word, and his, his word is a creative word. It's meant to create a community, to build a people, and that's what God is doing. And so as we sit and listen to sermons, and as we take notes, don't be thinking about uh, it, one thing, one unhelpful thing that notes can do is you can start listening to a sermon like it's a lecture. And it's about a, a test that's going to be taken at some point, a quiz, or uh, just about kind of gaining that information, and not about being transformed by the Word of God as He forms us into His people. God speaks in order to form the lives of a new community. So I say all that, and then I, I do want to say for, for this morning, and, and a lot of my sermons actually, I, I don't preach like it's a lecture. I don't want to preach like it's a lecture. And so oftentimes I'm not going to go through and say uh, point one is this and point two is this because I think we are so used to receiving information that way that we start to think of it just as just something else. But God is saying something to us today. As we are gathered here right now, God is building together his people into a, a spiritual dwelling place by the Holy Spirit. So we want to have ears to hear. If you do want some structure to kind of follow along with, the structure that I typically use is just the structure that is presented in Scripture. And so you could put in the margin. You could put, we're going to start in verse 34. So you could put 34 on the side if you want to and just follow along that way because that's how we're going to work through the text. So with all that said, let us look together to God's Word. Let us hear God's Word beginning in Matthew 22. I'm going to read from verse 34 to verse 40. This is the Word of God for us today. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37, and Jesus said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Pray with me once again. Father, would you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word by your spirit. Thank you that you are here building something, speaking to us through your word. May we receive it and may we be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, in almost every year since 1973, thousands of people have descended upon the city of Omaha, Nebraska once a year to take part in what one time was called the Woodstock, Woodstock for Capitalists. And this is the annual meeting for shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. While they, that may not mean anything to you right now, there are thousands and thousands of people throughout the world who pay close attention to what takes place at that meeting every year. Why? Why do people care what happens every year in Omaha, Nebraska? Well, because at that meeting, the now 92-year-old Warren Buffett speaks. Buffett is one of the wealthiest men alive. He's the man nicknamed the Oracle of Omaha. And when Buffett and his longtime partner, the even older 98-year-old Charlie Munger speak, people pay attention. They listen. You see, if you want to know about money and stocks and long-term investing, listen to Warren Buffett. This makes sense to us and the capitalists of our day. He's the expert, so listen to him. When Buffett speaks, people listen up. Now, with this picture in mind, consider what has been taking place in Matthew. Matthew's been taking, on us, taking us on this journey through the life and earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's set it in the context of what God has been doing throughout salvation history. And so he starts with, with Abraham. And then he goes through David. And we get to the birth of Jesus in Matthew 2. And then Matthew recounts the life and teaching of Jesus from Matthew 2 and all the way up until we get to Matthew 21. And on this one day, Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. That's where Matthew 21 starts. And Matthew's narrative, the speed of the narrative, just kind of grinds to a halt. And we've been, we started in Matthew 21, it was Sunday, and here we are in the end of Matthew 22, and we're on Tuesday. And this is the, the final week before the death of Jesus, what's known as the Passion Week. Matthew gives attention to what takes place, gives careful attention to what takes place on this Tuesday, and he focuses specifically on these interactions that are taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Now you see, Jerusalem, especially during the week of Passover, was something like Omaha, Nebraska every year. People came and people come, and one of the primary attractions, if not the primary attraction in one sense, is to listen to the experts. Now even though we live in the, the age of the death of expertise, as one person has said, we still listen to experts when we care about the thing they're talking about. And for a Jew... They wanted to listen to these experts, and so they, they would gather and they would listen. But it is clear from Matthew's narrative that the experts are not at all excited to hear from Jesus. They don't like Jesus. In fact, they are trying to trap Jesus, as we've seen. They're trying to trip him up to make him look like a fool. But does it work? No, it doesn't work. 
Not at all. As we've considered these conversations over the last few weeks, we've seen again and again how Jesus remains undefeated. He defeats again and again the so-called wisdom of the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Again and again and again. The wisdom of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, unmatched, unrivaled, undefeated, is on display for all to see. Now last week we saw how the Sadducees, those who denied that there is any resurrection, came to challenge Jesus. And unfortunately for them, their challenge ended with the crowd being astonished, not at how smart the Sadducees were, but at the teaching of Jesus. And now on the heels of this interaction, let's see where the story goes next. Look with me again at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now here we've we've moved on to the next scene. The Pharisees have heard, and many likely saw, that Jesus has routed the Sadducees, soundly defeated them. Now we have to remember the relationship between Pharisees and Sadducees. I think for us, I know for myself, I'll read the Bible and I just kind of lump them together. Yeah, enemies of Jesus. But these two groups were not friends. Not at all. These guys had huge disagreements, and one of the most significant disagreements that they had had to do with the resurrection. The Sadducees said, no, no, there's no resurrection of the body. The Pharisees said, yes, there is a resurrection of the body. And here, right before this scene, Jesus has made the Sadducees look foolish before the crowds because they deny the resurrection. It was a no contest, a TKO. The word that Matthew uses is, is silenced. It means to muzzle. Jesus has muzzled. He has shut them up, the Sadducees. The Pharisees must be excited about this, right? Look at verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now that's not really, if I'm following the narrative, that's not really what I expect. I would expect verse 35 to read, and one of them, a lawyer, came to congratulate him and say, what a great job he did silencing the Sadducees. Yeah, those dumb fools. I'm so glad they've finally been shut up. Thanks, Jesus. No, that's not what happened. He comes with a question to test him. No, maybe he's coming to test if he's really on their side. Like this, Maybe this is not all that bad. But you and I both know that that's not the case. The Pharisees don't send this lawyer over with an innocent and sincere question. Their intentions are far worse, far more nefarious. And how do we know? Well, Matthew gives us two indicators about the intention of the Pharisees. And I I know, say the Pharisees specifically, not the lawyer, because Mark and Luke also relate the same account. And they have some interesting things to say about this lawyer and about Jesus' response to this lawyer. But Matthew's not concerned about that. So you'll have to give attention to Mark and Luke at another time. What we want to care about is what Matthew has for us. And he's very clear that the Pharisees have bad intent in sending this lawyer with this question. And Matthew gives us two indicators about the bad intentions of the Pharisees right here in these two verses. And they're, they're implied, and we see them when we read Matthew in its right context. So first, Matthew 22, 34, and 35, it takes place in the context of Matthew's entire gospel, right? We don't just read a text in isolation from everything else that happens around it. So when Matthew says in verse 35 that the Pharisees came to test him, this should remind us of something that also took place 
in Matthew's gospel. Do you know who else came to test Jesus? It occurs in Matthew 4. It was when Satan came to test Jesus, to tempt Jesus, to try to defeat Jesus. And Matthew is making this connection. There's something deliberately satanic in in the Pharisees coming to Jesus. So he says they came to test him. The second indication of the bad intent of the Pharisees is in verse 34. And it's again clear when we read Matthew in its appropriate context. Matthew's gospel takes place in the context of the whole of the Bible. We don't read any one verse in isolation from the book that it's in. We don't read any book in isolation from all of Scripture. Matthew's writing to this primarily Jewish audience who knew well the Scriptures. And at that time, that meant the Old Testament. These were the stories and the truths that gave them understanding, that brought shape and purpose to their lives. And so when Matthew says at the end of verse 34 that the Pharisees had gathered together, I think he wants his readers to hear an echo of something. And this echo would have sounded much more clearly to his original readers than it would to us. The sound they hear ringing is from Psalm 2, more specifically Psalm 2, verse 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it speaks of the sending of God's Son to conquer God's enemies. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And the Pharisees would have believed and known Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 2 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. I talked early on in our series in Matthew about how Matthew's always bringing out the old to show the new. And here, once again, he's doing that by highlighting the Pharisees then, they took counsel together. They gathered together. They gathered together. They're taking counsel together in order to stand against the Lord's anointed, to stand against Jesus. And unfortunately for the Pharisees, both both Psalm 2 and the rest of Matthew's gospel is going to make very clear how this is going to end for the Pharisees. So the Pharisees send this lawyer with this question to test him. Let's see what they ask. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, here we have to start by considering why did the Pharisees bring this question? Right? I mean, Jesus has, has defeated everybody who's come with their questions, shown his own wisdom and authority. Why this question? Now, certainly... This was a question that the Pharisees enjoyed debating. They held in Scripture that God gave 613 laws to the people. They counted them, 613 laws. They listed them all out. And they enjoyed debating which was of first importance. And this was a means of of really showcasing their their own wisdom, their own intellect. It was probably like a lot of sports fans enjoy debating who the greatest player or team is. It's like, I mean, you know there are some teams that are better than others. Yeah, absolutely. But which one is the best? Well, let's debate. And people will debate ad nauseum about that. So maybe that's kind of, that's what was going on. They like to ask this question. Maybe the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to enter into their own dispute. And whichever way he went, there was this opposing group that would step in to defeat him, to show his folly. Or perhaps the Pharisees were asking to see if Jesus would undermine the law of Moses. I think I I like this idea. I think this is probably more on point. This is what they've thought that Jesus has been doing all along. He's come to undermine, to reject the law of of Moses. 
because they see Jesus and they see him as acting as if he's above the law of Moses. So if they ask him this question, he'll probably deny the law of Moses as well. And then, I mean, all of his credibility is gone. While it's hard to know exactly why the Pharisees bring this question, Matthew doesn't really seem to find it too important, other than to say that their intentions were bad. But regardless of why, it is one of the most important questions that could ever be asked. This question is ultimately a question about our most important obligation, our greatest duty in life. Let's look again at the question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What does God say that we all must do? What is the most important thing for us to do? That's the question that's being asked right here. And amidst the drama of the interactions between all of these religious leaders and Jesus, we can't miss how significant this question and its answer are for us today. Remember what God does as he speaks? He, he convicts. His word is living and active, and he builds. He builds a people together for his own glory. Now, before we get to the answer Jesus gives, I think we should consider for a moment God's law because we have a bit of a complicated relationship with God's law as Christians in the United States of America. How should we think about God's law, about God's commands? Now, we live in a society, in a culture, that hates being told what to do. It's a part of our American DNA. We are a people of freedom, of independence. Do you know what our national holiday is called? Independence Day. We are a society that defines freedom in terms of the ability to do and pursue whatever makes us happy, to live out who we feel we are as an individual person. And no one else can tell us what that is and what is the law but telling us how to live, right? So we don't really like the law. This is the, this is the cultural water we swim in. Sure, we need some laws to order society, to protect people, but we live in a culture that says happiness is found outside of and in spite of those laws. Certainly not because of those laws. If there's a law that gets in the way of me being happy, that law should be changed. That's what our society says. The great danger for us is that we can tend to think about God's laws in the same way. So it's okay, God says don't murder. I won't do that. Or God says, don't be angry at your brother. I guess I shouldn't do that. But these laws, we tend to think of them as more about just keeping us from doing bad things, not so much guiding us to happiness, guiding us to the good life, guiding us into flourishing. So when the law gets too specific or too close to keeping us from what we want, there's this little word we like to throw around in, in Christian circles, and that's legalism. And we start quoting Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Just let it go. It's fine. We say things like, we don't need more law. We need more grace. So just give me grace. But what all this reveals for Christians is that we often have a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God's law. So we see God's law as this maybe list of do's and don'ts that don't really lead us to happiness, but kind of serve to protect us a bit, a necessary evil. But God's law is not a list of rules. God's law is an expression of God's grace. It is God's gift to his people, his blessing for his people. 
God's law is God coming to us to establish and exist in relationship with us. So we might say that God's law is an expression of God's presence and goodness within and among his people. That's what God's law is, the nature of it. Our lives are not some blank canvas for us to color and fill however we want. No, they're not. Every person is called to walk in a very certain and clear direction and only in that direction. And that's what God's law presents for us. God's law is something that calls us to the good life. It says that if we want to be truly human, fully human, if we really want to flourish, if we want to be who we were really made to be, then we must live in this certain way. That's what God's law is doing. God's law, in a sense, I mean, forget, try, to, try to separate yourself from the neg- negative connotations of law, but God's law, in a sense, is this presentation of the good life that's meant to shape our imaginations of how we are to live. It's this wonderful, life-giving thing. It's a beautiful thing. This is what Psalm 1 holds out to us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. I don't really delight in a lot of laws, but in the law of the Lord, we must delight. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 119 starts in a similar way. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That's where blessing is found, life is found, flourishing is found. The good life is found. This is what the Sermon of the Mount was all about. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He did not come to render it meaningless and say, you know what, I've set you free for freedom. So just everything that Moses said, just don't even worry about it anymore. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to show its eternal significance. He is the one who says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That is the word of God, the law of God. If you want to flourish, if you want to experience joy and blessing, if, I mean, if that's you, it's me, if you want to stand firm in trials, then listen to God's law. Listen to God's law. So just as those who want to make more money listen to Warren Buffett, how much more, brothers and sisters, should we listen to Jesus, the author of God's law, the expert of all experts. I mean, expert is almost, de- expert, I would say, is demeaning to describe Jesus as an expert in the law. That's demeaning to Jesus because he's far more than an expert. How much more should we listen to Jesus when he is asked this most important question? Which is the great commandment in the law? Brothers and sisters and spirit, give us grace to listen to Jesus' answer. Look at verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus doesn't choose one of the Ten Commandments. Instead, he goes immediately and decisively to what Moses declares to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. 
And in Deuteronomy, the people are on the cusp of entering the land promised to them, and Moses is just reminding them of what God has said and what God has done. And he reminds them of God's law, of all that God has done for them and all that God has said to them. And after reminding of them of the, of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, Moses declares in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now that should sound very f- similar to what Jesus just said. This passage is known as the Shema. And it's central to Jewish life. In fact, Jews during this time especially the Pharisees, they would recite this passage twice every single day. Morning and evening, this is what they were reminding themselves of. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This declaration taught that love for God should be wholehearted, undivided. And Matthew it's funny, I've, I've, like many of you, have probably recited this many times or said it many times, and I tend to stumble. I'm like, heart, soul, what is it, mind, might, strength. I get a little confused. And it was great working on the sermon this past week and realizing, oh, the reason I get confused is because in Deuteronomy, it's heart, soul, and might. In Matthew, it's heart, soul, and mind. And in Mark and Luke, it is heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, I mean, it's great, all of the above. You just check that one for the test later, afterwards. There is not some secret point in these various word combinations. The point is very clear. We are to love God with all that we are, with every faculty, with our minds, with our bodies, with our emotions and desires. The Christian life is is really about reordered affections. That's what God calls us to. What sin does is disorder our affections. It disorders our desires. We want things that will kill us. That's what sin is. And what God's law lays out for us, what Jesus calls us to, is to want that which alone can give us life. So when asked to speak to the greatest commandment, Jesus goes right to love for God. And this is where all obedience flows from. J.C. Ryle writes, he says, love is the grand secret of true obedience to God. Love is the grand secret of true obedience to God. If you want to do what's right, love God. May your heart delight in God, the gracious one, in whom all goodness exists. May your soul be fixed on God, the incomparable one who alone is capable of satisfying your every desire. May your mind be set on God, the infinite one, who is more glorious than you will ever comprehend. And this love of God, as we love God, it's centrifugal, meaning it works out from the center. And so while we love God, this love moves outward. And so Jesus, unprompted, goes on to further expound God's law. Notice the the question was just, what's the great commandment? And Jesus says, here, here's the great one, and I'll give you another one. Look at verse 39. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is clear. If we love God, then we will love other people. It's actually because we love God that motivates our love for our neighbor. Now, while we may agree with this in principle, in practice, 
mm, this is pretty hard. <laughs> it can be a lot harder. Yeah, love my neighbor, that's great. But it can be a whole lot harder when we apply this specifically to that person who lives next door or around the corner or that coworker who doesn't get along with anyone. Yeah, Jesus says to love them as yourself. And we have to recognize, as Scripture teaches, that, that loving God and loving others, they go together. We can't pick and choose. We can't say, oh, you know what, today, I'm just, it's Sunday, it's Sunday. I'm all about just loving God. But the others, I mean, just stay out of my way, please. 1 John 4.20 says it this way, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. A liar. That's pretty clear. Pretty black and white. If you say you love God, then you love others. And not just those that you get along with or are like you. Jesus calls us to love all people, even our enemies, even that nosy or obnoxious or no one gets along with them, neighbor or coworker. Now, we need to be clear on what love is and is not. Love is not celebrating sin. Love is not supporting or going along with the lies that sin tell us that we want others to believe. Jesus describes the love of neighbor here as treating others how you would want to be treated, as considering the interests of others more important than your own, loving your neighbor as yourself. But what does this look like? Where do we go from here? Well, what Jesus shows us in verse 40, when he says that all of the law and prophets depend on these two commands, he's saying that, that that's what the rest of the law is talking about. So love God and neighbor, while that's primary, it's not the only law or even over the law. The rest of the law teaches us how to love God and others. So as you're thinking about that difficult neighbor to love, consider the rest of Scripture. Proverbs has much to say about what it might look like for us to love fools in our midst. Proverbs speaks directly to it. It's a wonderful gift. So we want to look at all of God's Word. What Jesus is teaching is that if we get this foundation right, if we love God and our neighbor, then we will be able to walk in the law of the Lord. This is what Paul says in Romans 13. After ex exhorting his readers at the beginning of Romans 12 to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is their spiritual act of worship, he writes this in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Any other commandment, that's pretty all-encompassing. They're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, brothers and sisters, may we love God with all our hearts. And when we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, while our prayer is that God might give us grace to love him and to love our neighbor, if you're anything like me, you often fail to love God as you should. Our love for God wanes. One song we sing says, uh, for my love is often cold. We are prone to wander, as come thou fount says. Maybe you find yourself hating others in your heart. You're unkind to your brother or your sister. You're disrespectful to your parents. What hope is there for any of us? We all stink at this. 
loving God and loving our neighbor, loving God with all that we are, undivided affection for God, delight in God. What hope do we have? We cannot fulfill the law. Well, Jesus in his mercy is going to pose a question to those gathered around him that we're going to consider more fully next week, but the answer to this question is where we find our hope. Look at verse 42 of chapter 22. Jesus is going to ask this question, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? How we answer this question is the most important thing we will ever say. Who is Jesus? Brothers and sisters, he is the only one who can deliver us. He is our only hope for salvation. Our only hope for salvation. There was a quote that I read. I wouldn't normally do this, but it came to mind again, and I wanted to share it again. Uh, I read three weeks ago at the conclusion of my sermon, or four weeks ago, whenever it was, from John Webster. And he says this, So often it seems to us that try as we might, we cannot help ourselves. We cannot listen well. We cannot greet God's word with faith. We cannot soften our hard hearts. Of course we can't. We can no more improve our spiritual lives than we can raise ourselves from the dead. But what we cannot do, God can and will do. God has not left matters in our own hands. We are in the hands of Jesus Christ. And He, Jesus Christ, is Lord of all things, all things, including our hearts, our wills, our desires, our hopes. He takes hold of us. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. By His Spirit, He brings new life. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And before I close in prayer, there was one more verse that I wanted to draw our attention to that gives us such hope, and I need some help with this one. So if you're in the kids' catechism class, I need you to stand up right now. It's a lot of pressure. You stand up. There was a verse that you guys recited this morning that is one of the most wonderful verses in Scripture. They're all really wonderful. But I wanted us to recite it together. And it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Are you guys ready? 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. You can be seated. Thank you, guys. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, would you, by your Spirit, help us to love what you love. Help us to love you and delight in you. We pray with the psalmist, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Only you can do this, and so it's to you we look and in you we hope. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.